We began last week to study Paul's second letter to Timothy, probably the last letter he ever wrote. And we come tonight to verses 3 and 4. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. Knowing God is the title of a best-selling book written 55 years ago by J.I. Packer. Many of you have read it. All of you should read it. There should be a necessary successor, I think, entitled Serving God. Because once you know God for yourself, then your next privilege is to serve him. It's the title of every Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is a servant of God. And Paul says here, I thank God whom I serve. He could have been serving some fanatical religion that would lie about a a holy young man and bribe witnesses to say that he had blasphemed and then nail him to a cross. He could have been serving that religion, but God had delivered him from that. He could be serving mammon. I know there's a, a man who he's got just an obsession with gold. And for years he carefully, over carefully, saves his money to purchase gold. It's in the safe deposit box. He's become a wealthy man. But when he speaks to the gold, it doesn't reply to him. He doesn't tell him that it loves him and it longs to take him to himself and that they'll spend eternity together in the new heavens and a new earth. Gold doesn't say that it intends to redeem him and change him and make him full of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness and self-control. It's mute. It is dead. And Paul has been delivered from that as, as every true Christian. And we say with Paul, I thank the living God whom I serve. So let's start there then. Uh, the first point that Paul was grateful to be serving God. I have a friend in Derbyshire. Uh, he's died now, Graham. He worked for years in Buckingham Palace. He showed Joel and I and the little girls around many years ago. It was demanding work with long hours, not just in London, but uh, when the entourage would go, he would go with uh, many duties. But he loved the Queen, and he loved serving the Queen. For him, the journey he had taken from a humble home in the Yorkshire, Derbyshire Dales to the capital city of England and the royal residence. It was simply an extraordinary voyage of discovery. He'd written a letter and he'd sent it off saying, um, were there any vacancies in Buckingham Palace? And uh, Graham had been appointed. Whatever the Christian does is in a life of serving God and we experience in that service a life of fulfillment It's our meat and drink to do God's will. This is a a non-negotiable priority for the Christian. We say, this one thing I do. We sing, make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Let me illustrate this. And I want to illustrate it not by using uh, congregational and uh, evangelistic religious activities I I want to speak about the concept of service serving God and so I'll go to the um, sections in the letters where Paul talks to servant slaves now he speaks to Christian slaves and he says to them if they can obtain their liberty he's glad and he encourages it 
But while they're serving their masters, there are certain basic things that they have to do. So this is what he tells Christian slaves in Ephesus. Ephesians 6, 5 to 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or free. Right, that's what he tells them. What does it mean to serve God? Well, it means obedience and respect and sincerity of heart in your work for your boss, in your work as a student at the university, in your attitude to your school teacher. Now, you could be called teacher's pet, and you must be careful of that, not to be too smarmy, because your teacher is a sinner, too, like you, and can be unjust and wrong. But that's never a cause for you to be disrespectful. And so he says this staggering thing about our attitude to those in authority, just as you would obey Christ. That's serving God. It's doing the will of God from your heart, wholeheartedly. Those whom God in his providence has put over you. They've got some authority over you then. As if you were serving the Lord, not men. It means certainly making sure you are worthy of the wage that you get paid. Again, he speaks to the slaves in the congregation in Colossa. And he says to them in chapter 4 and 22 and 23, some things that are similar, but nuances are different and helpful. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. <laughs> so that's how you serve the Lord. Should a, a Christian ever go on strike? Well, I think the answer to that is rarely, and the cause has to be just, and there's a ballot of the men involved, uh, and you speak openly about it. And other means of solving the dispute have failed. And then there's one more exhortation to slaves. And that is in the letter to Titus, chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them. Not to talk back to them. Not to steal from them. But to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way... They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So a life spent serving God like this arouses the curiosity of your masters and mistresses. It makes them trust you and it makes them ask questions as to why a mere slave can be optimistic and full of hope, whereas... The wealthy mistress is burdened often with despair. There's an example of it, which you know of, in the Bible, in the story of Naaman, the supreme commander of the Syrian army. He got leprosy, and there was no one that his king, who admired him and needed him so much, could get from all the physicians of Syria. None of them could heal Naaman. There was a slave girl. She was a believer in the Lord. She was working for Naaman's wife. 
And one day, then, the girl spoke to her mistress, and she said, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. All right, that's what was said. Now, his wife really trusted in this Christian girl. And uh, her trust in him had become increasingly strong. So that when the girl spoke to her mistress about a saviour, a saviour who could save her husband from the effect of leprosy, she pricked up her ears straight away. She told Naaman, do you know what she said to me today? She said that there's, there's a man, a, a prophet of Jehovah, there in, uh, in Samaria, and he can, he can heal you. Well, he went to the king, and he told the king what he had heard from a little girl, because this little girl, by her lifestyle, had built up then trust. There was a reliability, there was an integrity about her. And so he went, of course, and dipped himself seven times in the river Jordan, and he was healed, wasn't he? So being a servant of God then is not just uh, coming on Sundays and singing and giving money and so on. But it means living a Christ-like and a biblical life. A kind, patient, forgiving, holy, not keeping a list of wrongs that will be done against you. It means uh, overcoming evil with good. It means uh, forgiving 70 times 7. It means turning the other cheek and so on. All the the later chapters of the letters in which uh, Christian ethics are spelled out for families and for individuals. It means in our homes, then, serving God means uh, encouraging sweet and loving attitudes, not being provocative to our children and not taking our spouse for granted. It means in the congregation, then, we, we are respectful, we are teachable, not thinking we are wiser than others. Serving God means, of course, we, we have an evangelistic concern that the word of God should be spread. I'm thinking of our obligation to the Great Commission to teach uh, everyone who asks us at all the providential opportunities we have. And people say, where have you been tonight? And you'll say, I went to church. I went to the Baptist church. Why? And then you, you explain you give a reason for your hope in Jesus Christ. There's a phrase, a lovely phrase, in the authorized version, which always confused me, and I won't explain it very well tonight, but I'll explain it in a way that you'll understand, about casting our bread on the waters. I thought, that was, <laughs> that's a way to ruin bread, isn't it? It means sharing the bread of life with anyone around us who's hungry. Our vessel has been brought by currents and winds and by the steer, the man steering it, alongside another vessel. And in that vessel, then, there are hungry sailors and dying sailors and dying passengers. And we come alongside and we've got bread. We've got food for them. We've got the stuff that they are longing for and that they need. And so we, we cast our bread on, on the waters from one boat to the other. Serving God. It's uh, enriching work and satisfying work. And you know that. You, you worked on a beach mission and you know what it's like uh, with the kids there and standing on a pulpit that you made and you, you speak, you say how you became a Christian or you talk to the parents afterwards or whatever. And you know what trembling you have. Speaking at the CU, you line up with the other men specializing, the women specializing, you say, well, we've got Bible studies and, and so on. And afterwards, you know, there's such a, a peace, such a satisfaction, going away from Saturday morning, giving out some literature and so on. Uh, oh, what thankfulness there is in our heart. I thank God whom I serve. And it seems to me there can be no... Rich thanks 
unless there is real service. That's the first thing he talks about serving God. Secondly, he says he served God just as his forefathers had done. Well, what in in the world does that mean? Why does he say that? Well, you remember the problems that there arose in the early church by the people who had been converted out of Jewry, out of Judaism, but the, the traditions of Judaism were so deep. And so when the gospel went into Gentile countries, Judaizing Christians went in. They went to the church at Galatia. And uh, they told the church at Galatia, trusting in Jesus is wonderful, but it wasn't enough. That if you wanted to serve Jehovah and know his blessing upon you, then you needed to do what the fathers we loved did, Abraham and Moses and Elijah, get circumcised and not eat pork or venison or lobster or crab and go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the feast days. And if they did that, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and they would be hyper-Christians, really useful, really powerful in serving the Lord. And that er error went everywhere, didn't it? When Paul's in Rome and he's writing to the Romans, the last but one chapter, the chapter before that is all about then weak Christians and strong Christians. Peter gets wobbly about it. And uh, they have two tables in uh, fellowship lunch. Uh, And uh, in the one, it's just uh, kosher food for the, the really keen, zealous, Judaizing Christians, and then uh, ordinary food for those second-rate. And Paul has to rebuke Peter about that. And Paul is saying here, I serve God as my forefathers had done. He wouldn't allow a wedge to be driven between himself and his forefathers. In other words, he believed what the patriarchs believed, what Moses had written in the first five books and what Samuel and the prophets wrote and what David wrote in the Psalms and what the prophets wrote. Now there was a time when Paul thought it was very useful and necessary for Timothy to be circumcised because Timothy at that time was doing a lot of work amongst Jews. And so to remove then um, uh, suspicion that... um, he, he wanted to take them away from the faith of their fathers. He said, you better be circumcised. And he was circumcised. And, and Timothy could say, my mother was a Jew. My grandmother was a Jew. And I'm circumcised. And so they would write, what do you got to say to us then? There was a better relationship. But then he does write to the Galatians and he says... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision prophets, but a new creation, a new birth. Salvation through Jesus Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit into your life. That is what prophets. Not circumcision or not being circumcised. So Paul is saying here, I'm serving Jehovah as just as my forefathers served him, it's the same God I'm going to. And all new covenant Gentiles, all of us, our father too is Abram, like he's your father. And the promise God made to Abram that the nations of the earth would be blessed, that they would have the Holy Spirit and they would have the Messiah as their Savior, that, that's happened to us. Jesus said that the Old Testament it would not pass away before the heavens and the earth had passed away. It couldn't be broken. So, I, you know, I read the Psalms and I say, I want to love the Lord like David loved him, like Asaph loved him. I want to be honest and, and open. I want to repent and be sorry for my sins like I read about here in this book of Psalms. I want to be ardent. I want to devout. I want to worship God with all my heart like, like they did. I want, 
I'm there. These are my brothers. I understand what the, the book of Psalms, the devotion that's there. I don't need to keep a seventh day Sabbath. I don't need to keep ceremonial rituals. I don't need to go to Jerusalem three times a year. I don't need circumcision for these things. The Lamb of God has come and he's been risen the first first day of the week. And uh, then Paul served the God of his forefathers. Uh, He sang the Psalms. And um, he did to others as he would have them do to him. And he wanted all the nations of the world to recognize this God. He served God as as Abraham had and Moses had and David had. I mean, Abraham's our model. What happened to Abraham? Well, you know, God spoke to him. He was uh, just in a godless place called Ur. And God came to him and spoke to him and said, you've got to go to a land I'm preparing for you. And the nations of the world are going to be blessed by you. He heard the word and he believed it, didn't he? And he was declared righteous because just the word came from heaven and he heard it and he acted upon it. That's exactly what's happened to every true Christian here. We had the bare word from God. The word was, this is God's son. Believe on him and you will be saved. And we've believed on the Son of God. And we're following the Son of God. We've taken up our cross daily and are following him. And we have been declared righteous through our faith by God because we've done what God has told us to do. So um, Paul is saying to them, "I'm, I'm, I'm serving the God of my forefathers. And then thirdly, he says to Timothy that he was serving God with a clear conscience. Now, why did he say this? What was troubling? What was at the back of his mind? What was the niggling thought that made Paul say these strange words? I'm serving him with a clear conscience, you know. There's some accusation that's being made about him. What could it be? Well, maybe you can think of a number of things. Maybe the Jews were irate, irritated, because uh, Paul was taking the, the scriptures and he was applying them now exclusively to Jesus Christ. He would sing Psalm 23, but the Lord who was his shepherd, who so gave him that he was never in want, that was... The good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And when he read of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, then he would tell the Jew, this is Jesus, you know. The Lord Jesus is the servant. All we like sheep had gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was talking about Jesus in Isaiah 53. He would take the promises of God that... um, the seed of the woman would one day come and would bruise the serpent's head. That was Jesus. He was the one bruising the serpent's head. And Paul's conscience commended him for saying that. And his conscience said, boy, Paul. You preach it, Paul. You, you tell them these things. That the Old Testament scriptures are full of Christ. So his conscience didn't trouble him that uh, there were people very upset that he was taking their scriptures and applying it to his saviour. Or again, he had a clear conscience about leading people out of Judaism and baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even when he knew, almost certainly, a wife who was baptised would be divorced by her Jewish husband in his anger. And converted children would be thrown out of their families and the families would have a funeral service because the son or daughter had said that 
the man found guilty by the Sanhedrin was actually God the Son. He had a clear conscience for telling people these truths that Jesus was the Son of God. The Lord Jesus had said, if we lose our family, our fathers, our mothers, our brothers and sisters in this world, then we will gain in this world then fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and in the world to come everlasting life. So he had no regrets about so preaching that Jews then said goodbye to that old way of life and faced the consequences and faced starvation and homelessness. Paul says, no, the, the Lord Jesus said this would happen to us. Or again, he, he had a clear conscience about the way he applied it to Gentiles. When he heard that uh, Nero was now uh, throwing women and, and men to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome and falsely blaming them for the fire he had started that had consumed a large part of, of the city. And uh, they were being torn apart under the gaze and raucous bloodlust of a, of a great audience. He knew, Paul knew, if he hadn't gone there and hadn't preached to them and hadn't told them, nail up your colors and, and count the cost of being a disciple. If he hadn't pressed them and pressed them to repent of their unbelief and believe in Jesus Christ, they would have grown old in paganism. And they would have had uh, grandchildren dangling from their knees. They wouldn't have had the lust of the crowds longing to see them torn apart by wild beasts in the arena, mocking them in the agony of their death. But uh, Paul says, I've got a clear conscience, because Jesus once said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets which were before you. So his conscience was clear. Clear when he applied the word to Old Testament believers, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, though it meant suffering for them. So Paul was thankful to be serving God. Thankful that he served him as his forefathers had served the same God. He was serving the same God as um, Abram, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the others did. And that he had a clear conscience in serving him. And then fourthly and, and lastly, Paul served God by constantly remembering Timothy in his prayers. Verse 3, night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Now the, uh, the convicting adverb is constantly. He didn't just pray when he felt religious. He didn't allow his feelings to be the touchstone of his duties. He prayed for Timothy every day. In fact, he prayed for him twice a day in the night and in the daylight. Why? Why did he pray so often? Well, of course, one of the reasons was there was a special relationship between Paul and Timothy. We're not to think that everyone Paul had been instrumental in helping and converting over the last 30 years, that he remembered them twice a day. You know, don't you, how God sometimes lays a special burden on your heart for a certain person or a certain place. And uh, they pray for you. A minister spoke to me um, at a funeral service this last week. He said, as he's, he's told me before, I pray for you every Saturday. My wife and I pray for you every Saturday, Jeff. 
And that intercession really is as important as, as ministry, as preaching. The fact that somebody has prayed for me for tonight. Keith Underhill came in 1964 to Aberystwyth, and he, he went to live in Pantacallion. It wasn't an exclusively Welsh hall of residence at that time. And the registrar, whoever was responsible for dividing up the room, put him in a room with a, a fellow student in his first year from Heath Evangelical Church in, in Cardiff. And uh, the boy was called Brian Williams. And Brian was a strong Christian, and Keith was uh, a mere Methodist at that time. And uh, Brian said, oh, you're a Christian, yes. Keith said, well, we must pray together. And then uh, he took him to the CU. And, uh, and then I arrived in 65, and Brian and, and, and Keith were here. He continued to pray for Keith. He went to Kenya. And then uh, he went to seminary in America. And for 10, 20 years, every Sunday afternoon, Brian wrote a letter to Keith. He supported him financially. And he prayed for him. And when I saw him last year, of course, he, he was still praying for Keith. What is this importunity then? That's what we call it, importunity. That means uh, constant, earnest praying. How do you differentiate it from what we're not to do, and that is vain repetition like the heathen, repeated chants. You know that you pray five times a day, you say this prayer, and it's always the same, at 11 o'clock, at 1 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, at 5, at 9 o'clock at night. Vain repetition. Well, let's just finish by looking at this importunity, this night and day praying. Firstly, true importunity has an object outside of ourselves in view. So when Paul prayed night and day, it wasn't for himself. It was not for blessings to come down from heaven on me. But his praying was focused on somebody else. A servant of God. Somebody on the front line. He wasn't praying, gimme, gimme, gimme. He was interceding and pleading for Timothy. He was under obligation, like we all are, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So he was not importunate about himself, that he needed stuff or blessings, but he was importunate for another. Now, asking the Lord in prayer is one of the links between praying and its fulfillment. I've told you this before, Edmund P. Clowney was the principal of the seminary I was in from 61 to 64. And when, in 1999, I spoke at uh, Westminster Seminary on the life of Dr. John Murray, um, he said to me, oh, come and see me, come and have coffee with me before you go. And so we had coffee together, and he said to me quite humbly that he had prayed for me every day since I graduated, and that was 35 years earlier. And then he said, it's a little demoralizing, my saying, bless Jeff Thomas, every day. Can you give me some stuff to pray about? Some needs that you have? I was enormously humbled. He had an object in view, and that object was me. And he brought me to the throne of grace. I don't know what I owe to Ed Clowney for my being here I don't know how much I owe to you and probably 
I never will know. I may know more. I probably will know more about my debt to you and your debt to me. We, whether we, we need to know, I don't suppose we do. So that's my first point. Importunity has a, an object outside of itself. We're not crying to God for me all the time. Secondly, importunity is focus, focused on God's grace. You pray constantly, aware that you're not wearying God by bringing the same concerns, by bringing the same man, a man in Kenya, and you'll continue to pray for him day by day. Paul prayed in the... He didn't say in the night, well, I prayed for him in the day. I don't need to pray for him in the, the night as well. He stopped everything else twice a day. Things grated to a halt. He washed the dishes. He finished making a tent. And, uh, and then he had a time of intercession. And I suppose if he was chained to a soldier, then it would be silent. It would be like many of our prayers are. They are from our hearts and in our minds. That was his daily routine. Now, of course, we pray for people. We pray for events suddenly, don't we? We've got to do that. I live by that sort of, of praying. We send up arrow prayers, we call them. God help me now. Somebody asked me something and I wasn't and in my heart I'm saying, Lord help me, help me now. You go to God wherever you are. And whatever time it is, there's an old commentator called Van Doren and uh, he gives ten encouragements about uh, arrow prayers. He says, uh, our petitions, they are never unseasonable to God. No time is unsuitable to God. No spiritual mercy is too great for us to ask from God. God is never unwilling to bless. No needed blessing exceeds God's power to give it to us. God is never disinclined to hear us. God is ready to answer us. God is able to grant all that we ask or think. God is willing to bestow God is waiting to be gracious. Those are the ten things, throwaway lines, he says, encouraging us then to keep praying. Keep shooting up those arrows to heaven. Even if that kind of praying seems to be bursting into the presence of so glorious and august august a person as the creator of heaven and earth and blurting out things to him, crying out things to him that we need. We, he's our father. When your children say, help me daddy. You don't say, is that the way you, sh- you talk to your father? Well of course it's the way we talk to our fathers and mothers. They are our fathers and we go to them and God is our father in heaven. Then, Jerry Packer, I talked about him, he wrote the book, um, Knowing God. He was a tall, gangling Gloucester boy. And uh, when he was about 12, he longed for a bike for Christmas. And he talked about this bike, this bike. Give me a bike, Daddy. No, I want a bike, Mummy. Give, give me a bike for Christmas. So Christmas Day, he went downstairs and he went into the front room where the presents were. And there, um, there was a typewriter. His parents judged he was far too gangly and uncoordinated a youth. And that a typewriter would be a far more suitable gift than a bike because he loved reading and he loved words. In fact, it was a perfect gift and he used it for years and years it was his pride and joy. Now, the God of grace answers our prayers like that. He knows about us. He evaluates us. And he says no to bikes and yes to typewriters maybe. And maybe for others he says yes to bikes and no to, to, to typewriters. That's a little poem. You know it. Evangelical ditty. And it's, it's sweet. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth will dim. 
he gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. That's importunity. Thirdly, importunity means we won't be put off. So he had an image in his mind. He tells us in the next verse what that image is. It's Timothy breaking his heart. But Paul was going off. And he loved Paul so much, he owed him so much, so many blessings he had from him, and he, he wasn't going to have him again around. And he, he cried, and the memory of his tears lived on in Paul's mind. Tears are powerful, aren't they? We remember people crying, don't we? And <laughs> that memory then constrained... Paul to pray for Timothy. And so um, there are real people who love us and we're going to pray for them. They're in difficulty. They're in need. They're in danger. They're carrying heavy burdens and we'll knock at the gates of heaven for them. And Jesus encourages us in that passage that uh, I read to you in Luke 11 when when I could find it. I'm speaking about um, Paul saying, night and day he prayed for Timothy. And, ah, boy, and, ah, that should be what a minister did. Oh, how poor I am. Fourthly, importunity will be focused. It will be specific. It's about a man in his 30s whose mother was Eunice and whose father, uh, whose grandmother was Lois. And he knocked ratatat on heaven's door for him. He specified him. There's nothing like, um, I'll say a little prayer for you. There's nothing cute about praying. There's nothing routine or twee or perfunctory about speaking to the ancient of days. It's not going through the motions. You know, when you become a Christian you, you run into difficulties difficulties you never had before there's opposition where there was no opposition you, you stand out like a sore th- thumb you don't go with the, with the flow do you? and so you've got to put on armour and the last piece of armour Ephesians 6 that you put on is called all prayer There are things, well, my friends, you know the situation we're all in, the urgency of it and the difficulties of it. You know that. We are so few. We are really so few, aren't we? And we have a great mission and a great task before us. And so we pray. Praying, from what you see here, isn't about um, there's a right posture. Uh, kneeling or putting your hands together or closing your eyes or um, at some specific time and repeating certain phrases. It's about a relationship with a God who loves us. A God who's opened the doors and says, come and speak to me. Come and tell me about this. That's what praying is. Now, you've got to be specific. I know you can pray for 7,000 million people in the world today and say, God bless them all. Or the 3 million people who live in Wales. And you can say, you know, God bless everyone in Wales and the million preachers of the gospel and so on. I can't say that such general prayers are forbidden in Scripture, but they seem to me very rare. Therefore, a friend of mine has come and I have no bread. So please, will you give me bread? That's what it's like. Someone has gate-crashed into your life and you're embarrassed. And you go to a friend. When I was a little boy in Penadaran in Merthyr, um, we lived in Pembroke Place and the next street was Bringlass Street. 44 Bringlass Street, Nana lived. My mother's mother. And there would be days when my mother would say, go down and get a cup of sugar from Nana. Or go down and get a cup of milk from her. 
Well, can you ask her for a couple of potatoes? My mother would run out. And, uh, oh, anything that Nana could give me for her daughter and grandson, she would give. So let's be specific about our requests to God. Let's name people, let's name meetings, let's specify times and emergencies. Don't let's pray, bless them all, the long and the short and the tall. If it's a young pastor, then pray for him. Jesus told that parable, that wonderful parable about a man who had no bread and a friend turns up late at night. And he knocks on the door and he wakes up. I'm in bed with my children, he says. I need bread. I need three loaves. Three. Give me three loaves of bread. He said, didn't want half a loaf or a cup of sugar or anything. God doesn't need the information because he is ignorant of it. But we serve a precise God. So let's be fervent and specific in our desires. Fifthly, importunity is hopeful. Paul didn't stop because he had hoped that God would hear things would be different night and day. Timothy was far away. He had few contacts with him. But he believed that he could help Timothy now. He could help him by praying for him. And Paul's hope was for joy. You know, he longed to see him. That's what he says, doesn't he? Um, That... um, Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. When uh, certain people come to your door and want to talk to you about religion, you're not filled with joy, but you're ready for a sparring competition. When somebody comes to read your meter, then that's okay. When electioneers come, you've got some things to say. But when it's your boy, it's your daughter. It's family. Come in. What a lovely surprise. Put the kettle on. So a great theme of Paul in prison was, please God, let me see Timothy again, that I may be filled with joy. God wants us to be joyful Christians. Multiply by infinity. Your Heavenly Father is a God of hope and a God of power. And you can go expecting mercy from him and grace to help you. If you can imagine it, God can do it. If it's even above what you ask or even think, God can still do it. You must trust in him. Don't give up. Never give up. Never give up. Does God answer prayer? Well, he always answers prayer. He does. Um, We pray through Jesus and all the the selfish and careless things. Um, Jesus takes those away and they're dealt with. And there's a core. Just, oh, for some it's so small, it's an atom. It's a phrase, it's a, a, a sentence of real thanks, of real adoration. Of real confession. And he gives it to his father. And it's powerful. It's powerful. I'm told that there are 34 specific personal prayers in the scriptures. 34. From prophets, apostles and our Lord. I'm not checked that. I just read books. And, And that's what they tell me. 34, and every single one is answered. Well, I do believe that. And the answers didn't come immediately, did they? Lazarus is ill, and the sisters send a message. He whom you love is sick. And that's what you say. You don't say, no, we want you to come and lay hands on him. We just say, he's, he's sick. They went and told Jesus. And that's what Paul did about Timothy. He, he told Timothy, and you know the cumbersome way in which that prayer was answered for Lazarus by Jesus, the delay that there was before the answer came. We pray because the Lord tells us to pray and not to faint.
And Paul had learned the power of prayer, hadn't he? He never prayed before the Damascus Road. He'd said prayers. But he never prayed before he saw the light on the Damascus Road, did he? And when people said, it's a trick, it's a ploy. He's not really a Christian at all. Um, uh, We've heard terrible things about this man. And God said, he's praying. And when they went and kneeled down with him, they found a different Paul. He was praying. Don't stop praying. Don't let the devil say, well, you're a hypocrite if you pray now because you haven't prayed for the last week or month or whatever. Be devoted to prayer. Romans 12, 12. Don't just pray when you feel like it. Pray without ceasing. Get into a routine. Maybe you can't twice a day. Part of Christian marriage is having somebody to spur you on so that you pray together and you pray apart. I've been talking to you tonight about serving God. And I'm saying one of the ways we serve God is we speak to him. We pray to him. We intercede for others to him. And we long for more joy which comes to us as we better serve our Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we feel hypocrites really talking I feel a hypocrite talking to the people about praying and I'm such a poor man for praying myself. I need your mercy and I need your spirit, the spirit of prayer that was in Paul from the Damascus Road onwards that he could night and day pray for Timothy. Thank you for all the people who pray for me. Oh, thank you, Lord. I wouldn't be here tonight. On this anniversary, I wouldn't be here except You've used people to keep me and help me. And Oh, Lord, we're so glad of these things. And we ask you to make us a praying congregation. Make the CU a praying CU. And we do just remember now certain people that are very precious to us and are in great need. And we just ask you to help them and bless them. For Jesus' sake, amen.